Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. We have multiple locations, including an online service found at gethope.tv. If you're not from the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina or near our Agape campus in Haiti, we'd love to still have you be a part of what Hope is up to through our online services. If you do live in our physical area, go to our website at gethope.net to check out where our campuses are located and our service times. Please like and share this with your friends or family. We are so glad you stopped by. Well, what is up, Hope? How are we? Good. Excited in the room right now. Welcome to those of you joining us online all across the country, all across the world. And uh, to those of you joining us at one of our physical locations, uh, we are in week two of a sermon series that we're calling House of Cards, The Illusion of a Perfect Family. First comes love, then comes marriage. And that's what we're going to talk about this week. Aaron Nelson talked about the foundation of, of dating, what the Bible has to say about dating. Did you guys enjoy Aaron last week? Yes, me as well. Absolutely phenomenal. Uh, This week, we're going to take the next step after dating comes marriage. Now, not all of you are married. A lot of you are. Uh, Statistically, the statistics are pretty good that most of you in this room and watching online will be married at least once in your life. In fact, if you're married, go ahead and raise your hands in the room right now. Awesome. Keep them raised. Uh, If you are engaged, go ahead and raise your hands. Nice. Congratulations. Keep them raised. Keep them raised. All right. If you plan on getting engaged soon, go ahead and raise your hand. Awesome. All right. You can put your hands down. Uh, Raise your hand if you were surprised that your boyfriend or girlfriend just raised their hand. Yes, I saw some of those. Um, There is a question that I know that I could ask all of you couples right now and your faces would just light up. There is one question that I could ask that would make you just giddy with excitement to answer. You know what that question is? How'd you two meet? How did you two meet? For some reason, it doesn't matter, even even if you're mad at each other, there is just something about that question that just, it's like the curtains have parted, the lights have come on, and you're going to take center stage. And you always start it the same way, right? You want to tell it? No, I'll tell you. You want want me to? Okay, I'll tell it. I'll tell it. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I don't know if these people are prepared for how incredible this story is. We're going to change their life. Um, And usually, I've heard a lot of these how did you meet stories, and mostly they're pretty lame. Like, I was at Starbucks. I dropped my keys. She gave them to me. I got her number. That was it. Uh, Me and Jenny have a story, too. Uh, uh, There was this pretty girl in photography the first semester of my senior year. I thought she was pretty. I couldn't tell. She always wore a big jacket and a hat and stuff. So uh, we went and got coffee one time. Then uh, the last semester, my senior year in college, I took an 8 a.m drawing class and I got there late and there's one seat and guess who it was next to the pretty girl from photography so we started flirting and I got her number and then the drummer in my band asked her out I didn't like it so I asked her out after that and I could go on and on you probably heard it if you know me but I love that story I've told it a thousand times and it never gets old it's an amazing story Uh, it's it's a defining part of my life it's our story And every single married couple has a story like that, that they just love, that they think is so important. Well, you may not know this, but uh, you are still telling a story through your marriage. You are still saying something powerful to the world by the way that you love each other and by the way that you interact with your spouse. And actually, that is God's purpose and intent and plan for your marriage. And that's the question I want to try to answer this week. When it comes to marriage, what's the point? 
What is God's purpose? What was his intent when he designed marriage? Because he created it. So he had an intent, a design in mind when he gave marriage to the human race. And this is a really important question to ask because not just with marriage, but with everything. If you don't know the purpose for which something was created, you're not gonna use it to its full potential. You might, you might possibly use it improperly. Like if you got a, a new dishwasher and didn't know the purpose for which it was intended and you try to cook a steak, in the dishwasher, it's not gonna go so well. I tried it in college, I can just tell you from experience. Or if you, if you use your cell phone as a doorstop, it might work. You could use it as a coaster for a cup, but that's, that's not what it was designed for. That's not what the creator's intent was. And this is especially true and important to know when it comes to marriage because your marriage will reach its highest potential and will give you the greatest satisfaction when, only when it's operating according to how God designed it, okay? And his purpose, his, his intent is to use you and your spouse to tell an amazing story to the watching world. And that simple truth right there can transform the way that you view marriage and view your spouse and really go throughout this whole marriage thing. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. It should be easy to find. It is the second book in the Bible and the first book in the Bible, second chapter that we're going to be in. Table of Contents is kind of a book. Cut me a break. But um, now if you're unfamiliar with Genesis, uh, the first chapter is like a highlight reel of creation. It's like day one, day two, day three, all the way to day seven where God rests. And then in Genesis chapter two, the author rewinds the tape a little to the sixth day where God creates mankind. And it slows down and it zooms in on God's creation of Adam and Eve and marriage. And that's where God kind of tells us what his purpose is for marriage. But there's some stuff that you have to understand in chapter two to grasp the full purpose of chapter, uh, in chapter one, to grasp the full purpose of chapter two. In chapter one, God kind of slips into this rhythm of creation. He speaks, something bursts into existence, and then God's like, that's awesome. It is good. So he says, let there be light and there is light. And God says, that light is good. And he says, let there be darkness and there was dark and it is good. Let there be land and there was land and it was good. Let there be plants, let there be animals. And on and on he goes until he breaks that rhythm a little bit when he gets to the sixth day. It's in Genesis chapter one, verse 26. It says, then God said, let there be man. No, he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. See, on the sixth day, God kind of pauses and he huddles up with the other members of the Trinity. So it's the Father, it's the Son, it's the Holy Spirit. We don't know who he's speaking here, but he's, he's like, guys, today we're going to do something awesome. You thought the giraffe was cool. You just wait, okay? This is the day where we do something absolutely amazing. We're going to create something that is like us. We're going to create something that we can have a relationship with. We're going to create something that reflects us. When we look at them, it's going to kind of be like looking into a mirror. And so we see in Genesis chapter 1 that God has a purpose for creating mankind. And it's to bear his image. So in a weird way, when someone looks at you as opposed to looking at a duck or a rock, they're supposed to see and they can see all these different characteristics and character traits that point them to their creator. 
Like when you create, when you create art or when you create music or you create a business or even a spreadsheet or when you create like a little tiny human life with your spouse, you're pointing to the creator of the universe or uh, in the way that you nurture in the way that you care, in the way that you have emotions, in the way that you have relationships, in the way that you interact, you are showing all the human beings on earth what God is really like. We're bearing his image. That's our purpose. But it's important that the author says, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Because he's not just talking about Adam. Because when we get to Genesis chapter 2, after he creates Adam from the dust of the ground and breathes life into his nostrils, we see God say something that he has never said up until this point. It's in Genesis 2.18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good. Never said that before. It's been, it is good, it is good, it is good. Now he says, It is not good that man should be alone. Well, why is it not good that man should be alone? Takes us back to Genesis 1. It's, because, it's not because Adam's lonely. It's not because he's bored. It's not because it takes more than one person to, to plant corn. I don't know. It's because alone, Adam can't bear the full image of God. By himself, he can't tell the full story that he's meant to tell. He needs someone else. He needs something else to complete that story. So God says right after that verse, I'm going to make him someone. And I'm going to make him something awesome. And so he creates female. He creates woman. Genesis 2.18, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, ladies, these are strong words. Strong words. Helper and fit. Uh, that word helper, I think we kind of misuse it a lot. He's not talking about like daddy's little helper. Like my middle daughter really likes helping me out with chores around the house. So I'll say, hey, Reese, we're going to go hang some blinds. You want to help me out when really she just kind of holds the tape measure and I do all the work. It's not that kind of helper. That term helper in the Hebrew, it's used 19 times in the Old Testament. 16 times it refers to God. That's high praise. And then he uses this term fit. And in the Hebrew, it means like but opposite. It's like a key and a lock, like a yin and a yang. It's not a copy, but it is a complement. And um, um, what, Adam, what God's really saying to Adam is, Adam, I want you to be able to bear my full image. I want you to tell this vibrant and amazing and crystal clear picture of what I am like and who I am. But alone, you can only tell a part of the story. And even when I create Eve, she can only tell a part of the story as well. And even if you put those two stories side by side, they would still only be half the story. But when you guys unite and start telling one story together, that's when the story gets the most clear. That's when the story gets the most powerful. That's when the image is what it's supposed to be. Now, by the way, this is free. You can do with it what you want. <laughs> How many genders do we see God creating here? Two. No more, no less male and female. And are there differences between the male and the female? Yes, that's the entire point. That's free. All right, let's go back to Genesis 2. It says, now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. 
See, we're supposed to feel the aloneness, the loneliness of Adam. God parades every single animal in front of him, probably two by two. And Adam names them at the end of the line. He's like, but there's, there's every single animal has a partner and I have none. Right? The badger's got a bay. The shrimp's got a shorty. The gorilla's got a girl. I worked hard on that. Come on, I need some more laughter. <laughs> but I've got no one. So, Genesis 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her into the man. Uh, to the man. That word made right there in the Hebrew, it's fashion. Ladies, you got the most attention of anything else in all creation. God hand-built you, he handcrafted you, and he could tell how proud he was of you because he presented Eve to Adam. He's like, Adam, close your eyes. I know, wake up first, now close your eyes. I got something amazing for you. Eve, come here, put him in front of Adam. I said, now Adam, look, what do you think? And Adam was like, wow. And he actually bursts out into poetry. The very first lines of poetry ever written or ever spoken were from a man to a woman. Now, she didn't have clothes, so that might have helped. But in Genesis 2, 23, it says, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In the Hebrew, uh, the word for man is ish, and the word for woman is isha. So he's like ish, 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 ah. Like so like, but so different. Like man and whoa, man, Right? And so he names her, and then the author breaks into the story, and he gives us a theology lesson. And this is where I want to spend our time here. Chapter 2, verse 24, it says, Therefore, that's important, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The question is, what is that therefore, therefore? Why will a man leave the comfort and the safety of his house, his home, his family? And why will he, he brave all the dangers of the world and join with the wife? What's the reason? Because it's not good that he's alone, right? We see that in context. And that is where 90% of us stop. That's where most of us stop when it comes to the purpose of marriage. God designed it so that I wouldn't be alone. It's for my happiness. It's for my companionship. It's for romance. It's for partnership. But that's not the full answer. Remember, why is it not good that Adam's, uh, why is it not good that Adam's alone? Because alone, he can't show the world what God is like. He can't bear the full image of God. So when you put Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 together, what you see is marriage exists to show the watching world what God is like. That's its design, that's its purpose. In the way that you love your spouse, you show the watching world what the love of God is like. In the way that you enjoy one another, you show the world how God enjoys us. In the way that you create life together, you point people to the creator of the universe. In the way that you commit to one another, remember in sickness and in health and good times and in bad, in the way that you stick with each other, you proclaim to the world this story, this picture of the never-ending faithful love of our God. That's the purpose of marriage. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did during the first season of their marriage. But 
something happens in the next chapter that changes that purpose a little bit, that refines that purpose, that adds a little more definition to that purpose. Because all of that stuff that we just read, it happens in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. But what happens in chapter 3? The fall. Sin enters the world. Eve is deceived by the serpent. She eats of the fruit. She gives Adam the fruit. He eats of it. And in that moment, the perfect world that God had created was thrown off kilter and really broken. And we read in in Genesis chapter 3 that sin had some devastating consequences, that now the relationship with each other was imperfect. Now the relationship with God wasn't what it was supposed to be. Now they had a hard time figuring out what the God that they were supposed to showcase is even like. And now it's harder to love and serve and partner together because of sin. Now it takes work and effort to tell the story that my marriage was meant to tell. And that's the world that you and I live in. Not the perfection of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, but the sin and the brokenness of Genesis chapter 3. So this is so important. Listen, on this side of Genesis chapter 3, my marriage, your marriage, our marriages are meant to tell a story not just about our Creator, but about our Savior. The purpose of your marriage is to tell a story about the saving and transforming love of Jesus Christ. See, Genesis chapter three, it did not throw God for a loop at all. Wasn't unexpected, he knew it was coming. He knew that his people would stray from him. He knew that their hearts would be hardened. He knew the thousands of years it would take to get them to a point where they were ready for his son to come down. He knew Jesus would be born and live and die on a cross and be raised on the third day. And he knew how important that story, that truth of Jesus in the place of sinners would be and how desperate, eternally desperate it is for every single person to hear and receive that truth that he gave us a living, breathing parable and wove it into the very fabric of human history. And it's this thing that we call marriage. And if you don't believe me, Paul says it point blank in Ephesians 5, which we'll, we'll dive way into in two weeks when I just address the husbands in the room. But it says this in Ephesians 5, Therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What's he quoting? Genesis chapter 2. Then he says this, this mystery is profound. No one's understood it. But then he says, and I'm saying, or now we know that it refers to what? It refers to Christ and the church. See, the purpose of your marriage is to be a sermon on the gospel. Every day your marriage is meant to and designed to and intended to proclaim to the world imperfectly but powerfully what the love of Jesus our Savior is like. And I just want to pause and let that land and settle in. Because there's a lot of people watching online at our campuses in the room right now who are like, that is the craziest thing I have ever heard. I've never heard that in my, that's a no marriage book I've ever read. I haven't heard that in a TED talk. Like I thought it was about happiness. I thought it was about comfort. I thought it was about about having a partner to walk through life with. Or some of you who have been Christ followers for years and years and years and married for years and years and years, you're like, I think I've heard that verse in Ephesians at some point, but I didn't really know what it means. And so what? How does this impact my marriage at all? Well, it does in a really big way. Let's just take those two approaches to marriage, right? The purpose of marriage is for companionship, romance, happiness, and the purpose of marriage is to tell a story 
about Jesus. Okay, let's just take this first one. If the purpose of, of, of marriage is happiness, then it seems like the worst way to go about it. I mean, you take one sinful, selfish, broken human being, and you take another broken, sinful in all these different ways, selfish in all these different ways, and you put them together under a covenant, a vow that they can't get out of, and you make them live under the same roof and share bank accounts, and you give them these little babies that scream and cry all day, that turn into teenagers that scream and cry all day like that, that is not a recipe for endless joy, right? Just doesn't seem that way. But if the purpose of marriage is to tell a story about Jesus, and you take a sinful, flawed person and another sinful, flawed person, and you put them together in a covenant of grace and forgiveness, although that might not be the perfect recipe for happiness, it is the perfect recipe for other things, right? Things like forgiveness, serving one another, giving up your rights and your privileges for someone else, taking on the posture of a servant, working for the good of others, those are the things that it takes to make a marriage work. It's almost as if marriage is perfectly designed to produce those things, those characteristics that show the world what Jesus is like. Like if the purpose is to tell a story about Jesus, it seems like God designed it pretty well. Or if the purpose of marriage is for your happiness, it seems like God would have done a much better job picking your spouse like, come on, you married people, what is the number one thing that annoys you, drives you crazy, or makes you angry? It's your spouse. They were great until you got married, right? I mean, how many times have you heard yourself say, man, life would be so much better if you were just an entirely different person? Or man, I would be so much happier if you would just get your stuff together and clean up your act, right? But if, if the purpose of marriage is to tell a story about Jesus, you view marriage a completely different way. Now when, you're, when your spouse lets you down, now when, you're, when your spouse has shortcomings, they're not hurdles, they're not barriers to something like your happiness, they're actually opportunities. They're opportunities. When your spouse lets you down, it's not an opportunity to point the finger, it's an opportunity to say, oh, now I get to reenact the gospel. Because I remember me letting Jesus down a million times and him taking me back and welcoming me with open arms. And this is an amazing opportunity to reenact that and to do that for you as well, for your benefit and for my benefit as I'm reminded of the love of Jesus and for our kids' benefit as they watch this, for the watching world to see it, you see? Now God's design for marriage and his choice of your spouse makes a lot more sense, right? Of course they're imperfect. Of course you're imperfect. Those imperfections are part of the design. Like when your spouse is just struggling with something or when they've been in a mood for like three years or when uh, they've just been, you've been serving and loving and sacrificing for them and you just get nothing in return and it gets to a point where you're like, you don't, you don't deserve how I'm treated. You don't deserve this. You don't deserve my love. You're reminded of, oh, what an amazing opportunity to show to the world what real love is. Because we see the bumper stickers, love is love. That pales in comparison with the love of Jesus Christ. When he was hanging on the cross, did Jesus say, man, I'm going to stay up here because these people are so awesome. They're so lovely. No. We were literally killing him. We were rebelling against him. We were maligning him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed 
not because we were lovely, but in order to make us lovely, you see. What an amazing opportunity to love my spouse, even when they don't deserve it, to show to the world what the love of Jesus is like. And there's a hundred different examples that I could use to show you that if God's purpose for your marriage is your happiness or companionship or romance, he didn't design it very well. But if the purpose of your marriage is to showcase to the world the saving and transforming love of Jesus, it all makes sense. It's the perfect tool to do that. Through the inevitable conflict and the ups and downs and the struggles with sin and just the ups and downs of life in a broken world, marriages like nothing else show to the world what the faithfulness and, and redemption and hope and healing and second chances and restoration and committed and, and resolved sacrificial love of Jesus Christ is like. You see, it's perfectly designed to do that. And in a paradoxical way, if you view the purpose of marriage as that, which it is, then you also do get joy. You also do get happiness, even though you're not seeking after just those things. I mean, what's the end result of two people in a marriage that view the purpose as just their happiness or just companionship? I'm talking 30, 40, 50 years down the road. Well, you get two people that are very polite, halfway content, and a little bored. That's what you get. Something's got to give, right? But the end result of a marriage that views the whole purpose as telling a beautiful story of the love of Jesus, what do you get at the end? 30, 40, 50 years down the road, and I've seen this. You get two grace-filled, spirit-empowered, deeply loved and deeply loving, selfless, joy-filled people who are head over heels in love with their Savior because they've, they've been treated at, from their Savior, from their spouse. They've experienced that love from their spouse on a daily basis for decades and people that look a whole lot like Jesus because they've practiced being like him day after day, month after month, decade after decade. And you think that kind of marriage will have an effect on your children and their children and their children for generations to come? I mean, I bet there's a lot of you in this room and watching online right now that don't realize that your biggest kingdom-building, gospel-proclaiming, like mission-advancing opportunity is your marriage. It's powerful. And for those of you that are just dating right now, I want to save your marriage before it starts. You need to find someone and look for someone who can tell that story with you. Your number one goal is to find someone in a dating partner that is already telling that story, that looks like Jesus and loves like Jesus and acts like Jesus and wants to do more as the years go by. That's who you need to look for. That's the purpose of marriage, to tell a story about the saving and transforming love of Jesus. And just so you know, this is a story that God's been telling for all of eternity. You're just joining him in, him in it. How does the Bible start off? We just read it with a wedding with the wedding of Adam and Eve. All throughout the Old Testament, God compares himself to a husband and to his people as a bride. He pursues after them. He offers a, a, to, to enter into a covenant with them. When they're unfaithful, he remains faithful. Where does Jesus start his ministry in the New Testament? At a wedding, he turns water to wine. In all these different parables, he says, you wanna know what the kingdom of God is like? It is like an engaged couple. It is like a wedding feast. It is like a wedding ceremony. 
In the New Testament, the authors say Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. That metaphor goes all throughout the New Testament. We are engaged to him. He is away preparing a place for us and he will come back one day. And you know how the whole Bible ends? how our first few moments in eternity will be like. It's in Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's us, the church. You're just joining God and telling the same story that he's been telling from the very beginning. So the question is, what story is your marriage telling? What story are you proclaiming to the world? Is it a story about forgiveness and sacrifice and commitment and unconditional love? Or is it a story about selfishness, complacency, a story that's about me, 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 and not us and not him? And that's the most important question you can ask your spouse. And I would encourage you to do it today. Just get away and sit down and say, hey, hey, what story are we telling? And be honest. And then say, okay, what story do we want to tell? And how can we start doing that? Later in the Bible, we see that as we're telling the story, the New Testament authors go deeper into this idea. I, as a husband, have certain lines to say that my wife doesn't. And she has certain lines to say in the story that I don't. And I have certain scenes to act out that she doesn't. And she has certain scenes to act out that I don't. And the New Testament has some super practical advice. So if you want to know what your particular role is and how to fulfill that role well, you're going to have to come back for the rest of the series. <laughs> so let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Um, thank you that it's given in love and it's true. I pray for all the couples, all those that are dating, all those that divorced and back on the dating scene, I pray for every single one of us that we would take our calling as spouses, as married people, seriously. That we would encourage our married friends. Father, would you allow us to see and rejoice and exult in and rejoice in the story of Jesus Christ? Would we be so in awe of it and overwhelmed by it that it just naturally spills out? that when the struggles of life hit us, that we just bleed the gospel and forgiveness. And so, Father, I pray for good conversations. I pray for healthy marriages that fit your pattern, your design, for the sake of your glory, for our joy, and also for the sake of our kids, for the sake of our family members, for the sake of the watching world. And it's in the beautiful name of our Savior we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to The Hope Podcast. We appreciate you joining us as we tackle issues facing our modern world from a biblical perspective. To make sure you don't miss a message, please take a moment and hit the subscribe button. Also, if you're new to Hope and want to check out what we're about and how to be a part of our community, go to our next steps at gethope.net slash next. Let us know your story because we'd love to connect with you.